Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Everyone, I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Look, it's been two weeks since the Mar-a-Lago search. Two weeks. And now, Donald Trump's legal team has gone on the offense, finally. I should clarify, I mean the offense inside of a courtroom, not the court of public opinion. Now, they filed its first lawsuit since the FBI searched and seized items from the ex-president's home exactly two weeks ago today. And there's a whole lot to unpack. First, let's begin with exactly what Trump is now asking for in this filing. Because in this new filing today, there is about four main requests. Now, one is for a special master. That's a third party to be appointed by the court who oversees the review of evidence gathered on either side of the parties. Another ask they have is to pause the DOJ from reviewing the evidence until that review by the special master has been completed. They're also seeking a more detailed receipt, shall we say, of the property that was removed from Mar-a-Lago, and they want DOJ to give them back whatever was not within the scope of that search warrant. Now, in this suit, Trump also argues that his constitutional rights have been violated, and Now, there is also confirmation of previous reporting in this filing that Trump tried to get some sort of a message to Attorney General Merrick Garland three days after the search. Now, let's just say that message was probably equal parts unconventional and entitled. It says, counsel for the former president spoke by phone on August 11th to the top counterintelligence official at the DOJ and discussed the following message. And I quote, President Trump wants the attorney general to know that he has been hearing from people all over the country about the raid. If there was one word to describe their mood, it is angry. The heat is building up. The pressure is building up. Whatever I can do to take the heat down, to bring the pressure down, just let us know. I wonder if that was code for back off, Garland. Or maybe a mixture between a Lin-Manuel song from Encanto and the pressure and maybe a little bit of Ferris Bueller and not being able to take the heat. That was Cameron Fry, for those of you listening from the 1980s. This is also the same AG that put an exclamation point, by the way, on this statement. No person is above the law in this country. I can't say it any more clearly than that. And he will be asked again, of course, we know. Well, the DOJ put out a statement tonight saying, quote, The August 8th search warrant at Mar-a-Lago was authorized by a federal court upon the required finding of probable cause. The department is aware of this evening's motion. The United States will file its response in court. Reaction now from senior legal analyst Elliot Williams, who was a deputy assistant attorney general at the DOJ. Also here is our senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez, and Doug High, a former RNC communications director. Glad to see you all here. I love the smile shots, the scan <laughs> when you all are announcing that moment in time. Look, um, it's been two weeks since the search on Mar-a-Lago. The big question is, I mean, why now is the filing? Why wait so long? We know there has been a history in the past of having a special master 
review for privileged documents in the Michael Cohen case, right? So why do you think he's waiting so long now? Look, it's been a mystery. We've been uh, we've been talking about this actually yeah. for a couple of weeks, and we frankly thought it it would have been ha- it would have happened the day of the search, or certainly in the in the in the days afterwards. Um, what this is, if you read the, the 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 document that they filed in court, is partially a, a PR uh, strategy, right? Which is to air the president's grievances about the former president's grievances about the previous investigations. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there is something here that if he had done it earlier, perhaps actually might have worked. And I'm not sure. Look, I mean, they, there still might be a judge's ruling that will that will help him here, uh, which is to pause the Justice Department to make the, the FBI stop what it's doing and perhaps delay this while you have a third party come and review these documents. Uh, the, the former president could argue, right, and, and the, people have been successful saying, you know, your search warrant was overly broad and took things that shouldn't, that shouldn't have been taken. There's attorney-client material in here that should not have been taken. Mm. All of that, it, you, you have people who succeed with judges. But, the, you know, certainly waiting two weeks is, well, is way too long. It's, it's not just that it's way too long. It's the simple fact is the Justice Department has had access to this evidence for those two weeks. Right. They probably and read it already. They've already read it already. So what if this, even if he had an argument right. or even if he has a legal case for saying, you know, look, the, there were personal documents in there or other things that maybe should not have been swept into the search, the Justice Department has reviewed it already. So were he actually to have done it within a day or two, it might have made total sense. This, I mean, I would go further than you would, Evan, and say this is a, largely a political stunt more than a legal document. I mean, that's the thing, right? You're not talking about what makes legal sense. You're talking about the court yeah. of public opinion, right? Doug, the idea of, you know what, something saying, here, hold this ice cream cone, don't yep. eat anything of it, and I'm asking for it a week later. It's all gone. <laughs> right. Everything I've already had is gone. Whether it's a hot day it's or not. It's a hot day or not, or it's melted. gone. I mean, if it's me, it's gone. It's, it's right now. But the idea here of thinking, what is his end game? Is it to say, first, look, I want you to release everything. And, oh, you know what? They're probably going to look at, pr- at privileged information. Are they trying to sort of make the case in the public opinion's viewpoint? Well, let, let me make an argument that one of the reasons that this has gone on for two weeks before they made this filing is what we've seen from Donald Trump over the past several years is that his legal team is not exactly consistent and, or always diligent. So they make mistakes. They, they delay, not intentionally sometimes. As they try and slow things down, they also just aren't as organized as you would think a former president's legal team would be or even a current president when he was president, you know, trying to challenge the election rules. So I think that's part of it. But he's... He's done well in the court of opinion on this. He's done what he's wanted to do, in part because Merrick Garland gave him a two-day window to flood the zone of what Trump wanted out there with no response from DOJ. That's been now bantered back and forth, but Trump certainly feels comfortable with this as a political move, whether it's a uh, legal move or not. And by the way, it's kind of on your point about being successful. I mean, the Mar-a-Lago issue is actually boosting Trump, at least in the polling. Whether you like it or not, whether you think it's truthful or not. I mean, there was an NBC News poll that came out, and voters are increasingly saying that they're more a supporter of Trump than the Republican Party overall. I mean, look at these numbers. You've got 34% who are, um, are you a greater supporter of Trump? Um, They're greater now than perhaps they were back in May. That's a pretty big number. I mean, think about, is that part of the calculus here, Doug? That the plan was, hey, if I go from the January 6th hearings when I am looked at disfavorably, to say the least, I'm kind of persona non grata in a way, and now I'm a victim. Yeah, Donald Trump plays the victim very well, even if unconvincingly, you know, to the broader audience within the Republican Party, he's victim number one. He's the alpha dog of the party, but also the number one victim. And so 
the way that this was done without an immediate DOJ response gave Trump that real opportunity to declare himself the victim. And by the way, raise a lot of money doing so. Yeah, now look, you know, the Justice Department could do a better job of talking about what it does. The problem is, and I, you know, having worked there as a deputy assistant attorney general for several years, at a certain point, when you open the door to talking about open investigations, you're opening the door to number one, jeopardizing witness safety, mm-hmm. number two, jeopardizing um, the, the case you're working on, number right. three, evidence and so on. So the the tactic has been for decades, centuries, you know, um, just not to talk about them at all. Now, he could I say- I on pending cases. Yeah, yeah yes. I mean, he could- <laughs> He could say, our folks have integrity, and when, we, uh, when the facts and the law lead us somewhere, we'll go there. But it, it's hard to say what, where that line is. Yeah, but. and plus the problem is, you know, Evan, you've got some good reporting, new reporting on an issue where normally the government is quite secretive and holding close to the vest out of necessity when it comes to, say, grand juries, let alone the affidavit ruling by the judge to say, look, it can't all be under seal. Something might have to give, but you've got some new reporting for us. Well, yeah. So th- this is, I think, part of the strategy here is Trump is trying to distract people from the other investigation, right. which is the January 6th investigation, which arguably, frankly, is perhaps more perilous for him. And uh, we learned uh, that uh, my, my colleague Jamie Gangel and I learned that the Justice Department uh, had sent another uh, subpoena to the National Archives. This is a grand jury subpoena. This is the second one, uh, which is seeking additional documents in addition to what they had earlier gotten back uh, three months ago, uh, which, you know, that first request was for stuff that the, that, that, that the archives had produced to the January 6th committee on Capitol Hill. And so this is a subsequent request where the Justice Department and, and Tom Windham, who is the prosecutor looking at the, the broader picture of, of what happened here, which was the effort to impede the transfer of power, getting these uh, fake electors uh, organized around seven states, they're looking at the the, the higher crimes, right, Mm. possible crimes, which could include the former president and his allies. And so this is very perilous for the former president because you see a prosecutor now who saw what they got from the first tranche of documents and says, I want more, and I, I know that there's more that the archives has, that, that we need to have uh, as part of this investigation. Man, there's a lot of things happening, a lot of Great juggling things. all these things. Evan Perez, thank you so much. Doug and Elliot, please stick around. Not that I don't want you to be here, Evan, as well. <laughs> Do love you, too. But listen, ahead, we've got an extremely violent arrest that was captured on video, and it sparked a whole lot of conversations now about police, again, crossing the line. We have two guests here who um, will dig much deeper into this incident an attorney for the suspect who was beaten by the three officers, and the governor of Arkansas, who has called those officers' conduct, quote, reprehensible. This as his own state, and the feds are now investigating. All that's next. Well, there's another controversial arrest recorded on video, and it's reviving a very important conversation about the use of violence and the use of force in policing in this country. Now, we're about to play this video, and I'm going to warn you that it's very disturbing to see what is transpiring. And we don't know the full context yet behind what sparked this incident. We only know what we can see with our own eyes of what happened after a man was apprehended just yesterday outside of the convenience store in Arkansas. But look what you're seeing right there. I mean, it's enough to spark a civil rights, a federal civil rights investigation, and for the state to launch an immediate investigation as well. 
enough for two deputies involved to be quickly suspended and one officer involved to be placed on administrative leave and enough for the governor of Arkansas to call their conduct, quote, reprehensible, even before the full story comes out. I mean, look what you're seeing and compare it to what you're seeing with the man on the ground and the number of officers that we're looking at here. Now, that governor, Asa Hutchinson, is going to join us live in just a few moments here. But first, we have an attorney for this suspect who was seen being brutally beaten on that video. And that man was released from jail on a $15,000 bond just this afternoon. Remember, this happened yesterday. His counselor, David Powell, joins us now. David, thank you for joining us today. You know, I've seen this video, unfortunately, multiple times, as has many, many people. And it's very disturbing to think about the level of force that's being used. And I I just wonder, first of all, um, how is he physically doing right now? I mean, looking at what sort of violence he is enduring, I wonder about his physical state right right now. Laura, first of all, thanks for having me this evening. Um, Randall's actually in really good spirits. You know, I visited with him last night, uh, visited with him again today. Obviously, he's sore, uh, as you and your viewers saw on the video. I mean, he's got three officers on top of him, pummeling him, punching him, kicking him. According to my client, at one point, his eye was gouged, and you can clearly see uh, the injuries. But believe it or not, overall, Randall's in pretty good spirits. I mean, he, he's one of the most soft-spoken people that you're ever going to meet. Uh, and, you know, he, at the end of the day, you know, we want justice for him uh, and watching this video and what happened and what he endured. Um, as far as his injuries, there were injuries to his face, his knees, uh, his elbows. Uh, one side of his head was really, um, was really swollen and bruised. Uh, he had to sleep, I believe, on, the, on his right side because he couldn't even sleep on his left. Uh, you can see one of his ears was purple and bruised and, and, and swollen. Um, he was given a shower uh, yesterday evening, I believe. He had some sort of medical uh, examination here at a local uh, facility. Uh, but even today, you could still see some of the injuries. There was blood still somewhat oozing from, from one side of his head, unfortunately. Well, let me ask you, David, and thank you for giving us the detail because it's important to understand. But you are his lawyer. Why? You're not bringing, this is not a civil action. You are his defense attorney because he was actually no. still put in jail. Is that right? That's correct, Laura. Yeah. This why was first he, came why to my attention. Even come floating into the, around on oh, I don't want to cut you off, but I do want people to understand why it is he sure. was placed in custody. Uh, he was arrested at that, uh, that gas station. And uh, there were arrested on maybe nine, eight or nine different charges, everything from assault, battery, um, believe uh, carrying a weapon, criminal mischief, whole plethora uh, of charges. He was taken into custody, and Laura, as of last night, he didn't even have a bond set. We had to reach out to the local DA's office, attempt to get a bond set, and then, uh, as you know, he was, he was released this morning. What do you make of the decision to place these officers, some on suspension, one on administrative leave? Has this been communicated to your client and has it impacted in some way the prosecution's conversations with you about, I mean, there's claims here he's trying to resist arrest, I think it's one of them, and obviously we see with our eyes what is or is not happening there. Has this had an impact on your conversations? Uh, it, It has. You know, again, when I first met 
uh, with Randall, he had no idea that this was that this was floating around. That the video was floating around, and you can see for yourself that he's not resisting. And, and what's at least thirty seconds of, of video there. And when speaking to Randall, he indicated that this went on for a couple of minutes, as far as the, the beating that that he was on. Uh, that he was that was taking place. Um, I asked him what sort of commands they were giving him. Were they telling him to put his hands behind his back? He said no. Uh, they just continued to wail on him. And Laura, honestly, if if that bystander had not been filming this, nobody would know about it, and he'd probably still be sitting in this detention center uh, right now. I mean, is that the the full video we're seeing? Or it seems as though just from looking at it as even a cursory review. It's either catching something in the middle. We haven't seen the beginning, the middle, and maybe the end. But what is this the full tenure and duration, excuse me, of this entire attack? No, no, I, I believe that it's not. Uh, we have reached out to the local DA's office, mm-hmm. and um, there is other, other, other footage available. Uh, I believe there may be a, a dash cam, which we've not been able to see yet. And I know that at the press conference earlier, uh, the local sheriff's office seemed to indicate that there wasn't body cam, but now we believe that there may actually be at least one body cam that may show the entire incident. So uh, hopefully we're able to see that in the near future. David Powell, thank you for letting us know what's happening, and we'll follow this story as well. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Laura. And I want to take this conversation next to somebody who's already been quite outspoken about this. This is the governor of Arkansas. We're going to ask Asa Hutchinson about the investigation his state has now launched into this matter. I mean, this is, what, more, a little more than 24 hours ago? We're also going to get the, the, his take, the Republican governor's take, on the criminal investigation related to classified documents that were seized from the former president, Donald Trump's home. All of that is next. So I want to get now to the governor of Arkansas, who frankly has stepped out in front of this investigation to call the actions of what we saw from those deputies on the screen reprehensible. He said their response was not proper and not consistent with their training. And I applaud him for getting out in front of the issue. Governor Asa Hutchinson joins us now. Governor, welcome to the program. It's nice to see you, although I have to say... Not under these circumstances. I mean, that was a very difficult video for so many people to watch, even in the long line of cases and long lines of investigations we've seen involving use of force. I wonder what was your impression, Governor, when you first even learned of this happening just yesterday? Well, I learned about it just like everybody else when it went on social media, and I found it very disturbing. And uh, I issued a statement uh, shortly thereafter Uh, But I do uh, really applaud the uh, county sheriff and the chief that took immediate action for suspension with an investigation. The prosecuting attorney within hours indicated that an investigation uh, was going to take place, asked the state police uh, to uh, lead that investigation, and that is uh, going on now. And as I said, uh, we have incredible, wonderful law enforcement officers in Arkansas What you see on that video is not consistent with their training, nor does it represent uh, the effective law enforcement we have in this state. Uh, We will see more uh, whenever we have additional footage that comes out. And so we do want to wait and see what that shows. But what we saw, just like everyone else, it was very disturbing. 
Well, I could not agree more about one of the reasons it can be so disturbing is because it's not what you come to expect from somebody who asked for the opportunity to be a peace officer, right? The idea we're not recruiting and having to assign the role of a police officer, you want to believe that there are good intentions and that there are those who honor the badge. I'm wondering, are you getting any clarity so far as to what took place before what we saw on the video? Has the investigation essentially reaped any information that you have been privy to? Well, I have talked to the chief of police. I've heard a little bit more information, but you obviously know from the charges that were filed that there's more to the story and there's actions that preceded uh, the what you saw on video. And so to see the whole story, you're going to have to see what, what happened before and also the witnesses uh, that might have uh, been threatened. And so let's wait and see that. But regardless it still concerns me that a law enforcement officer with proper training has to be able to control the circumstances. And uh, that was not uh, something that uh, whenever I talk to our training officials, that's not consistent with that. Uh, that was, uh, in my judgment, excessive. But let's wait for the, ju- uh, for the investigation to be completed. Governor, can you ensure that the body camera footage, if there is some, or dashboard camera, if there is something available, will be made public for that opportunity for the public to understand what has happened here? Uh, That's really a decision that the prosecuting attorney will have to make. Uh, It will be under investigation, and so generally those things are held until the investigation is complete. Uh, That will be uh, his determination as to when and if uh, that is released. Obviously, uh, there's a public interest now that this is out there to be able to see the entirety of it, and it will at the appropriate time. Which, honestly, I mean, almost a perfect segue to what I really want to know about as well, Governor, and the idea of calls for transparency, an extraordinary amount of public interest. One can only think about the almost now two-week-old, officially today, two-week-old search on Mar-a-Lago. And you have had quite a lot to say about this issue. What has been your impression about that decision to search that home of the former President Donald Trump? Do you believe that transparency is still required and the understanding of having more information than than less? I do. And I concur that uh, the silence of the attorney general for two days uh, was very harmful in terms of having uh, the public understand what is happening. They didn't have enough information. Uh, The uh, former President Trump controlled the dialogue for two days, and so a lot of public opinion has already been formed. Uh, Hopefully, the judge, and I believe that he will, will soon uh, order that the probable cause affidavit be released. I'm sure that some of it will be redacted to protect names, to protect certain information, but hopefully that will shed light on what happened and the reasons for it. The public has to know what is going on here to have continued confidence in the Department of Justice and their actions. And silence is not uh, the right approach, even though that is the normal way, as you well know, uh, that generally the uh, Department of Justice does not comment on these type of searches. But you've got to know when you go into a former president's home, whenever you uh, do this kind of unprecedented action, that you're going to have to say more to the public than ordinary. Well, the former president could have been more expressive about what he had and could have been more 
um, in line with what we've heard from the, the DOJ about this issue to date. But I do wonder what impact do you think this has or should have going forward when we're thinking about, no, I know the midterms are right around the corner, but 2024 seems to be perpetually on the brain of so many people. I'm, it's likely on your brain as well. You are now a term-limited governor, um, well-respected. I'm wondering if you think this should have an impact on the viability of a potential Donald Trump re-election campaign, and, and does it have an impact on your own thoughts? Well, in the short term, you could almost give the attorney general the title of honorary campaign manager and fundraiser uh, for Donald Trump. Clearly, uh, that is resorted to his uh, benefit in the short term. I think it's important that we keep the public interest in mind. The public interest is making sure that classified information, sensitive public documents are returned to archives, to their, their protected environment. It's not appropriate for these documents to be running loose at Mar-a-Lago. That's not appropriate. That has to be returned and secured. And then this whole thing needs to be wrapped up. Unless there's something that is totally uh, oblivious to uh, the facts that we know now, uh, this is uh, not something that I see uh, leading to indictments. I don't see that. It needs to be wrapped up, and I hope that can be uh, accomplish in the future uh, so that we can get on with the uh, business of the country and, uh, and, and get the documents restored. And I think that was the motivation of the Department of Justice. But who knows uh, whenever they have not uh, spoken clearly about it. Governor, just on that point, wrapping the whole thing up, if it's clearly inappropriate to possess those documents and have them hold up in a place like Mar-a-Lago, as you said, mm-hmm. then why wouldn't accountability look like uh, if, if there has been a violation of the law, why wouldn't accountability look like an indictment or some sort of prosecution? Well, that's a great question, and that's exactly what has to be weighed by the Department of Justice. Accountability is important. But I do believe, and I've thought a lot about the comparisons with former Secretary of State Hil- Hillary Clinton, uh, there was reckless uh, handling of classified information extremely reckless, I believe was the words. It was investigated, and the ultimate decision was not to pursue any criminal case. That could very well be the outcome in this matter in the public interest, and as you know, there should be a high likelihood of securing a conviction if there is an indictment. But just as importantly, in the broad public interest of a former president of the United States, this needs to be concluded unless there is such egregious conduct that cannot be ignored, then we need to bring this to a conclusion once the public interest in securing the documents is obtained. Well, if there is an analogy to be made between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, I do wonder how supporters of Trump will view that analogy and will be, will be confident in the same way and articulate the same way you have in a consistent manner between what they wanted in the locker-up chance and what you're seeing now with the former president. Governor Asa Hutchinson, thank you so much. Nice speaking with you this evening. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, we're going to turn to this in just a moment. The real estate market has been super hot in recent months, but not for everyone who should be enjoying the benefits. Who in particular? Well, some black homeowners say they're at risk of losing hundreds of thousands of dollars until they turn to something called whitewashing. I'll tell you what that is in a moment. We'll have the nation's top housing official here to talk about what that means, the larger fight against racism in real estate, and and more ahead.
Now, look, maybe when you think of whitewashing a home, you're thinking HGTV, a little bit of Discovery Originals, Magnolia Network, thinking about a new coat of paint. But no. A Maryland couple says that they whitewashed their home, but they don't mean paint. They pretended to be white in order to get a fair appraisal. This is Nathan Connolly and Shani Mott. They're both professors, by the way, at Johns Hopkins University who live in a wealthy neighborhood. They're suing an appraiser and a mortgage lender who initially appraised their home at $472,000. The couple said that was well below the conservative estimate, and they were denied even a mortgage refinance. So they decided to get a second appraisal. But this time, they took down all of their family photos, and they had a white colleague show their own home. And guess what happened this time around? The value shot up to $750,000. For those of you doing math at home, that's only $300,000 in difference. And this is not an isolated incident. It also happened to this black couple in California. Oh, and to a black homeowner in Indianapolis. I want to bring in someone who is accountable on the issue of racial bias in housing. It's part of a new segment we're calling The Conversation, where we go beyond the headlines, we go beyond the sound bites, and we dig deeper into the very real issues. Marsha Fudge is Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and she joins me here tonight. Madam Secretary, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Now, Madam Secretary, I had to tell you, I mean, the idea for some of this notion of having to whitewash a home or even whitewashing a home to get a different appraisal, it might be stunning to some, not personally stunning to me. I grew up in a house where my parents often had were denied housing applications, rental applications because they were black, because we had a black family. But the idea that it's happening in 2022 is stunning to a lot of people that it's still happening. Can you explain a little bit about what your reaction is this to this personally, but what your agency's reaction will be professionally? I think professionally and personally, it is an absolute violation of the law. It is a violation of the fair housing law. It is a violation of the lending law. And so what HUD is doing and what we have done already is we were tasked by the president to look at appraisal bias, because what we know is that it used to be that these things happen only in red line communities, but now it is pervasive. It is happening everywhere. And we determined that part of the problem was how appraisers are trained, uh, who is in the appraisal industry, and how they are governed. And so what we did in March was to present a report that showed how deeply uh, this whole bias situation is across this country. It is systemic, and it is intentional to some degree. So what we have already done, Laura, because I try to look at how we can make things better, mm-hmm. what we've already done is had the, um, the appraisal subcommittee say to every single state in this country, the test that you use is no longer valid because it is a violation of the fair housing law. Well, what We've was that test? That right, but, excuse to, me. What was that test? I mean, what what test could you be using to give that lower of an appraisal compared to if a white colleague shows? Is it um, are these subjective criteria, or and it's not an objective process? No, the test was to become an appraiser. 
Okay. That's the test I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, but but what we have looked at is how data is collected. That's part of the problem. It's the data. So they collect data, and the data is not what it should be. They then use the data in a way that it should not be used. And so they come up with these biased appraisals. But as well, when you look at an industry that is more than 95 percent white, you find that people of color are treated differently because there is an inherent bias with a lot of them. And because they collect the data, the data is not good data. Now, of course, you can imagine that there are many people who will look at this and say, well, maybe this is just, you know, isolated incidents. And the idea that that phrase they often hear is the, you know, the, the plural of data or anecdote is not data. But this, as you mentioned, is systemic. And I wonder to what degree this has even been looked at before. I mean, I know that you in the position you're in have been very outspoken about this issue. And most people think about these issues in terms of redlining exclusively, not in the appraisal. Is this a novel conversation that's happening right now in this administration that hasn't happened before or there hasn't been the political will prior to now? It has not happened before. This is the first of its kind report. This is a first of its kind subcommittee. It is called property appraisal, uh, property uh, um, appraisal valuation equity. What the president has said is that we have to look at everything through a lens of equity. And so what we have realized is that people selling homes, just as the persons you were talking about, and even people buying homes, if their appraisal is not correct, what we find, especially as black people in communities of color and underserved communities, is we lose great wealth just through the appraisal process. If those homes are appraised the way that they should be, Laura, then we look at being able to pass down significantly more resources and more wealth to generations that follow. But if we are constantly undervaluing communities of color, either because they are communities of color or that the person themselves is in a community that they don't think that we should be in, then we consistently lose wealth in our communities. And that's why this is so important from an equity situation. And Laura, let me just tell you about my own home. Mm. Can I do that really quickly? I, I hope you do. I live in a... I live in a community that is two doors from an all-white community. I live in an all-black community. Two doors, literally, from an all-white community. My lot size is bigger than the house two doors from me. My house is bigger than the house two doors from me. But my home is valued at $25,000 less than the home two doors from me because I live in an all-black community. So not only does it happen everywhere, it is personal to me because we have to find ways to create the kind of wealth that our communities deserve. And if we are constantly being discriminated against, and that is really what this is, we can call it bias if you want, but it is systemic racism, and it is built within most federal agencies and those agencies that we oversee. So we're tackling it. We are now advising first-time home buyers on their rights. If they get low appraisals, we are doing it to people who sell properties. We are going to train all of the appraisers through fair housing and lending laws. We're going to make sure that the data is collected properly, and we're going to make sure that the right people have the data. That's our goal, at least in the short term. And in the long term, I hope that equity will be achieved. Secretary Fudge, thank you so much. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. Well, students are headed back to school, but some teachers aren't actually going back with them. In the midst of the nation's teacher shortage, and you can add these headlines here, 
You've got in Columbus, Ohio, teachers are on strike. In Philadelphia, bus drivers could soon be on the picket line. In Chicago, police are connecting active shooter drills. And the cultural wars, well, they're alive and well in Texas, where In God We Trust posters are now a mandatory display in their schools. In Wisconsin, a school district banned the pride flag and so much more. I mean, education is just one issue that seems local, but it's being replicated in states all across this country. We're taking a look at those stories that happen outside the Beltway, where most of us live, impacting regular Americans in our new segment called The State of Play. Back with me now are Elliot Williams and Doug High, along with Democratic strategist Maria Cardona. I mean, Maria, when you hear what's going on, sort of the collective tissue in part is culture wars. Mm-hmm. What's your impact? What's your, your thought? I, you know, my thought as a parent, and I have two kids that are about to go into school, I thank goodness that my kids are going to school in Washington, D.C., an open, progressive city that actually likes the fact that we are a diverse culture, that knows that diversity is a plus, not just here in Washington, D.C., but in our country. It pains me to hear stories of teachers, and I have heard them personally. I have friends who are teachers in Florida and in Texas, right, two of the states where this is happening front and center, where they say, I- I'm going to leave. I'm going to de- leave at the end of this year because they're not letting me teach real history. They're not letting me teach that diversity is actually a plus in our country. They're not letting me teach what these kids, my diverse kids in my school, are living each and every single day. And that is a shame. And I think it is not just hurtful. In this country, Laura, and to our kids, but I think it can be dangerous. You know, um, to take a slightly different approach, you know, I, I, I have some sensitivity to this argument that parents ought to be able to weigh in to what their kids are taught. Mm-hmm. Parents ought to have something to say about it. Look, mm-hmm. I'm a parent too. Mm-hmm. It's important. But, you know, when you start looking at what that meaning in practice now, and in terms of books that have been banned across right. America, number one, I Am Rosa Parks mm-hmm. has been banned by uh, a school district in New York, Pennsylvania. Um, Mouse by Art Spiegelman, perhaps the greatest book written about the Holocaust ever, if not, if not, you know, a, a very important one. And 37% um, of challenges to books now are happening in public libraries, not just schools. This is about taking away material, not just from kids, but from society that's very valuable. That, to me, is corrosive and destructive. And so I, exactly. schools but, are just launching point part of the problem, though, Elliot, yeah. though, I mean, you mentioned Washington, D.C., you mentioned some states or cities that are, you yeah. know, in these metropolitan areas. There's a big, I mean, I'm from Minnesota. There's people all over this world, so-called flyover country they talk about, who don't share the values you just have just talked about, the input. What do you think, Doug, yeah, when look, that happens? There are political impacts. And, you know, we saw this most specifically in Virginia, where Glenn Youngkin ran on education, both in opening schools, which yeah. had been closed for so long, and, and big fights with teacher unions over that, and what the curriculum was. We, we need to teach our history. We need to teach the good parts and the bad parts. And the reality is, on either side, you can get to the silly season pretty quickly. I just read in Texas today... Uh, there's a high school that's named after a man named George Dawson, grandson of a slave, learned to read at the age of 98, wrote a book about it at 103. The school's named after him. You can't read his book in the school named after him. That's crazy. That is crazy. But we, but we have to, we have to mm-hmm. come at a better place where everything doesn't get politicized immediately. We used to say all politics are local. They're all national now. But, he, but here's the problem, Doug. You mentioned Virginia. And what Glenn Youngkin did was a huge dog whistle that put fear in parents. And I can understand that fear 
Because if you talk about things like critical race theory and the way that he talked about it, by the way, critical race theory, as we all know, is not taught in schools K through 12. But but he talked about like it was, like it was something to be afraid of, like it was something that was indoctrinating the kids. That, to me, is fear-mongering. The number one thing that he campaigned on education was open the schools. Let's let our kids learn in school. I get that. There's a teacher shortage. There's also a student shortage. You know, our kids with their parents are voting with their feet. Two million kids are not in schools compared to last year. A million college students. Understood. That's and, a crisis. And that, that is a huge problem. But what is happening way too much across schools and specifically in conservative, MAGA agenda-loving Republican governor states is that they are fear-mongering. They are not looking at what is this country, what does it look like now, where is it headed? This is about fear of a demographic that is changing in this country. This is about fear of a country that is becoming majority-minority, and it is about leaders who don't understand how to solve those problems and just fear-monger instead of doing open discussions about the fact that we are all part of this great country. One of the greatest things that my parents did when I came from Colombia, when my parents brought us from Colombia, he sat down in a town in Florida with all of our neighbors, We were the only Latino family on that block and in that town. And he invited everyone over to dinner to make them understand that we were no different from them. We need those types of discussions. But the very fact that that had to happen is really telling in a country like this. When the idea that there would have been the concern that I must demonstrate to you that I am just like you. And frankly, that's one of the saddest parts. I I applaud what you're Mm -hmm. talking about, the initiative. But that's really quite telling and about where we are. Simply saying, uh, convincing people that yeah. you're right, isn't. I mean, it's, it's more than that. It's a political point, yeah. like you said, Doug. Well, so much more to talk about here. I'm glad you all were here. Mar- Maria Cardona, Elliot Williams, Doug High, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for watching, everyone. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now with, of course, Don Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.